So in 2017, way back, way back, six years ago, in 2017, our denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, sent myself and three other pastors to Bosnia-Herzegovina and Germany for what they called the missionary vision trip. They were trying to give pastors a vision for world mission, a vision for the work that's being done around the world, so that as a church family, as a larger family, both in our denomination and, and in, in the worldwide denomination, and as brothers and sisters in Christ, we would see what God was doing and, and know how to support uh, the church around the world. So this is a very cool opportunity, and I was very thankful to be able to, to go. Uh, Jackie was really, really pregnant with our, our youngest. Not the baby she's holding, that's our niece. But, uh, but Naomi, and, and so it was a little risky, but we got, we, she, she was able to um, stave off that until I got home, thank goodness. Not willpower, just, you know, timing. Um, <laughs> this is my, first, my third time visiting Bosnia-Herzegovina. I went there in 2005 when I was but a younger lad uh, with my mentor and pastor at the time. I went there again in 2010 with a very small mission team, me, my wife, and our friend Brad. And then I went again, and again, like I said, in 2017. So Bosnia-Herzegovina is an overwhelmingly uh, Muslim country. Uh, it's, it's somewhere in the high 90s of being Muslim, 95 to 98%, at least it was when I first checked. There is, Christ, there is Christianity in, in, uh, in Bosnia as well, but it's a very small percentage, and it is uh, between the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. And the, the Christianity in Bosnia-Herzegovina is, is in many ways tied to your ethnicity. If you are of a certain race, then you are automatically of a certain religion, which is how it works in most of the world. People are born into their religion. It's part of who they are. So, um, you know, if you're Catholic, uh, you're Croatian, you know, that kind of thing. If you're, if you're Bosnian national, you are a Muslim. If you are, I forget, another nationality, then you're an Orthodox Christian. Uh, furthermore, in the 90s, as you might remember, there was a, a genocide in Bosnia-Herzegovina that we saw unfold before us on the news when Bill Clinton was president. You may remember this. Um, and that genocide was unfortunately ethnic groups clashing against one another, uh, systems of, of racism and oppression, uh, and basically the, the Christians, the Orthodox Church, was... Um, sniping Muslim people who were just going about their lives. We went to a place in Bosnia called Sniper Alley where kids were, that were going to, to their school were being shot by, by, um, by Christians, if you will. Again, this is not personal conviction, Jesus-following situation of Christianity, but, but a, cultural, um, a cultural Christianity. And very much like the times of the Bible, um, it, was, it was something people are sort of born into as well in different parts of the world. So you can imagine that trying to share the love of Christ in the name of Christianity in a country like that is a very challenging venture. Uh, they, they actually did away with the symbol, I've said this before, they did away with using crosses to signify their churches because the Orthodox Church, after they were done conquering a region, they set up a giant steel cross way up on a hilltop. It was a sign of oppression. We have you under our thumb. You are under us. We have defeated you. That's a heartbreaking thing. So the churches in Bosnia-Herzegovina, I noticed a, sim a symbol as I went through the churches. It was the shepherd with the lamb is the, is the, is the symbol of Jesus Christ and the, and the Christian faith. And what a beautiful symbol that is. And I like, I actually like that very much. But you, with all that baggage and history, 
let's just say there aren't any megachurches in Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, <laughs> to, to say the least. Um, the international workers, what we call our missionaries um, in our denomination, have an extraordinary difficult time sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with their Muslim, Orthodox, Catholic neighbors um, who make up most of the country. And um, all, of the, all of the times I visited Bosnia, I found the churches to be extraordinarily small, with, with exception, a church about our size is in, in Sarajevo, which is a little bit bigger. Some of these churches are as few as three to five people. So it's a good thing that um, when two or more are gathered in the Lord's presence, that there he is with them. Because you really get to live out that scripture when you go to church in Bosnia. Basically, if someone's kid has a ball game on Sunday morning and they don't come to church, it might just be the pastor that shows up. <laughs> um, at one of the churches we prepared to preach and minister at, you now when we arrived, the door was locked. We arrived on time. It was, it was locked. And 15 minutes later, the pastor showed up and let us in. Um, that day, the church had only us three pastors from, from, from New York, uh, our two international workers that were hosting us, and the senior pastor. And the senior pastor seemed like he might be losing some heart with the discouragement of, of you know, he, he shared with us that sometimes he would go to, uh, to open the church and no one would come. So that day, uh, we, had, we had prepared messages. I was leading worship. One of my, my other pastors prepared a message. And his church is like 800 people. So this is new for him to preach to, to a very small crowd. Just hard out. Ten minutes into the worship time, two other people showed up, which was really nice. The church was about half the size of our lobby out there. Everything I think about space-wise is in reference to the lobby. I'm not good with, with spaces. <laughs> it's about the size of the, half of the lobby out there. It was a room in a bigger condominium type place that had apartments and then this one room that was the church. Um, with, with a church experience like that, you know, some people in that situation will be tempted to admit or, or to ask themselves, is this, is this a waste of time? Are we, are we, are we losing? Is this, is this a waste of time? And I'm, I'm certain that for my colleagues that had larger churches, it was, very, it was a very jarring experience in some ways. You know, we prepared a full sermon at worship time, and this was the, 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 the venue. It was the smallest church gathering I've ever been to, aside from me and my wife praying at home. As the service commenced, I began to lead the music, and I got a word of encouragement from, that I felt was from God for the pastor and was able to share that with him. The man from our team that preached did an excellent job, very funny, very engaging, excellent communicator, and just really, I don't know, he just brought it in such a way that was cross-cultural and, and encouraging. So there's a very encouraging time. Um, the word that I got was about healing and about how God heals us. I'm the God that heals you. And, it, and I'm thankful to say that it hit its mark encouraging the pastor. Um, so as the, sermon, as the service continued, two other women showed up as well and joined in the fun that we were having. And as soon as this service was over, if you've been to a place like Bosnia where hospitality is king, or if you were in Israel or Jerusalem for that matter where hospitality is king, um, as, this, as, we're, as we're praying at the very end of the service, in true Bosnian fashion, the women went about setting up folding tables from who knows where. I have no idea where they came from. From who knows where. Pulling out food. I don't know where it came from. Fresh juice. Fresh Turkish coffee. 
a, a loaf of bologna, which, which they call salami over there, and spreadable meats. And so we were all sitting around this table before you knew it, laughing, eating, praying, hearing testimony about how one gentleman who showed up late, he had come to Christ after having a spiritual dream from Jesus while serving in the army, in, in, the, in the Bosnian army. He had a dream about Jesus, and he, he had come to Christ, and he basically told his, he shared it with his fellow soldier, and the next day he, that soldier was killed in, in the conflict. But just an amazing story. When he, he left that church, he became a Christian. This pastor found him, and he was leading worship uh, for, for the church. And that was a really wonderful time. Later on, the senior pastor, who was the most stylish pastor I've ever seen. I don't know. He just had great clothes. Um, he took us on a tour of the city, shared, us with his, shared with us his own story of abuse, of trauma. Everyone in Bosnia is somewhat traumatized from the, con- from the war and how he himself had co- come to Christ and was called to the ministry. So to follow Jesus had earned this poor pastor a shunning from his family. You know, his father didn't speak to him. His family didn't speak to him. Um, he'd sacrificed quite a bit to follow Jesus. And sometimes he, he said, you know, sometimes I show up and I unlock the door on Sunday. No one comes. And um, it's, it's difficult. But through it all, you know, he'd been, he'd been faithful to that point. So we were able to encourage him to walk with him a bit, you know, spiritually as brothers in Christ. And it was a blessing to all of us. I'll, I'll never forget it. And that's just how it went. Um, the, next, the next week we came to another church where I got to preach. The building was about the size of our lobby. Um, it doubled as a soup kitchen the other days of the week. So the Christians in this church, it was, it was all women in this church except for one extremely old gentleman. And it, it was a soup kitchen for the community. And people of all races, ethnicities came to this kitchen. And even um, Roma people who are kind of shunned by everyone in the culture were, were welcome here to eat. And, and people ate multiple meals there a day. Uh, and, and relationships were built. And Christ was shared in more subversive ways because obviously being outside with that stuff is not always safe. So once again, we were able to, to encourage and, and, and walked away from that experience with just a warmth of heart, a sense that God was at work. And we asked the women of this church, what is your, what is your prayer for your, for your ministry, for your church? They said, pray that God sends men here. That's all they wanted. It wasn't because they wanted to have a boyfriend. It's because they just wanted, they wanted there to be men in the church to serve alongside them. You know, and, and to and to do this ministry together, and it brings a tear to my eye to think about that. And I pray, I pray that God has fulfilled that desire. We prayed with Him about that. So my question to you is, you know, was all of this ministry that people in Bosnia were doing, and all the ministry that we were doing to minister to them, you know, a waste of time and effort? Was it a sign of God's curse or God's lack of favor on these Christians? which was the reason they weren't filled with, with people. You know, were they missing the mark? You know, what difference could they be making in such a small way? Those are the, 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 the questions you might ask. And emotionally, should they just give up? Were things bad enough that it's just time to throw in the towel and say it's just not going to work here? We're in the middle of a series on the parables of Christ or stories that Jesus told to his disciples and the people who listened to his preaching. And today's parable is relevant, not just to the church in Bosnia, but to us as individuals and us as a church as well. And this is one I've been looking forward to sharing with you guys. The parable of the growing seed. So Mark 26 to 29. 
He, Jesus, also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. So what do we learn about the kingdom of God in this parable this morning? The kingdom of God being the message that Jesus preached, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is within you. The kingdom of God is at hand. What do we learn about the kingdom of God from this parable? What does it mean? How does it encourage us in our personal walks and in our church? So in this parable, a man scatters seed on the ground. Earlier in the chapter, and earlier in Mark 4, is the parable of the sower, which is a much better known parable. So this is like three stories about seeds in this chapter, Mark chapter 4. We actually started our series at church with the parable of the sower. It's, a, it's a, about the word of God spread on the soil of human hearts in the world. And the different kinds of soil, the different kinds of human hearts where God plants his word, right? So the sower throws his seed. On the, soil of, on the hardened soil, on the soil of a hardened heart, the seed sits on the ground, sits on that hard soil. It cannot take root, and it gets stolen by birds, which Jesus references as being Satan or the enemy, stealing the seeds that God was trying to plant in that hardened heart. The second type of soil is the rocky soil. People are really excited to receive the word of God. This is awesome. Like, I went to church and God really touched me. I'm so excited about this. But there's a layer of, of rock just below the surface of the soil. And when hardship comes, difficulty or persecution comes because of the word that God's trying to plant in this person's life, because the seed cannot grow roots down into the earth, it quickly withers in the blazing sun and does not bear fruit. The third type of soil is what characterizes, I think, many people in our age and in our time, in our church, just in our culture, would feel they, they can identify with this, this soil. The soil is thorny. It receives the word of God with great joy. It begins to take root and shoot up out of the ground. But love of money or, or need of money, as we talked about last week, um, money being central, the worries of life, anxieties of life, and just dis- desire for other things, take precedent over the word of God. And so that little plant that's trying to shoot up out of the soil gets choked out by those three things. It doesn't mean the seed is, uh, as in the other, as in the first soil, you know, it sits there and gets taken away. The seed isn't taken away, but the, the plant just can never really grow past a certain point, right? Finally, there's a seed that's sown on good, soft, and nutritious soil. These are the people who hear the message of Jesus, accept it, receive it with joy, and let its roots go down deep, deep, deep into the soil. And Jesus says those people end up producing a crop of 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. That's amazing, amazing return for an investment. This parable is so beneficial to us. We've been talking about it with our kids in our household and, uh, and talking about among the church here, because I've gotten to share on this several times this summer. Um, 
it's so beneficial when we look at ourselves and evaluate our own hearts, you know, when it comes to the Word of God that God's trying to plant in us. You know, we're very, as we saw last week, we're very quick to justify ourselves in our own eyes or justify ourselves by comparison to other people instead of allowing ourselves to be justified by the only one who truly matters, which is Jesus Christ. So as we walk through our Christian lives, we must constantly be looking at our hearts, ensuring that we continue to be the good soil where Jesus can produce a crop. In our parable today, this other parable of seeds, the person who scatters the seed is not necessarily God, as it was in the parable of the sower, but a farmer, perhaps working under God's direction. The seeds are the fruit of God's word, God's kingdom, which Jesus was planting in the world that Jesus talked about constantly. So this unnamed man scatters the seeds of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and something truly amazing happens. Very slowly, even almost imperceptibly, as the man goes through cycles of sleeping and waking each day and night, something that feels like a miracle to this man begins to happen all by itself. The seed sprouts and grows, our text says, and the man does not know how. He does not know how it happens. All by itself, it says, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the kernel in the head. When the plant is mature, the man sees what needs to be done, and he harvests the crop that he did not actually produce. This is an Old Testament reference to the book of Joel, Joel chapter 3, verse 12 to 14, where it says, Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the wine press is full, and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So this is a reference to the fullness of God's kingdom come, and a picture of what the end of all things will look like. So God, who has caused all this growth that the farmer doesn't know how, will come to harvest his mature crop at some point. Evil and injustice will be dealt with fully, sin and death, sickness, and those who were the good soil in life will be united to Jesus Christ, those who have, um, have, have received the word and grown. As I shared earlier, we, we began this series looking at the parable of the sower, and as a physical representation of the different types of soil, I had four Tupperware containers that Jen helped me put together, which was really nice of her. Um, one had hardened clay soil, one with rocky soil, one with thorny soil, and one with uh, good soil. So that was a really fun illustration, great to think about the different kinds of soils. About a month after I preached that sermon here at New Life, I preached on that same parable again at Camp Pattersonville near Amsterdam. And as I opened the soil containers before I shared my message, I was shocked to see that one of the containers, the one with the good soil, had, as it sat on a desk at the church, uh, while I was on vacation, it had sprouted plants inside of it with the, with the lid shut. So just listen to this. While I was on vacation, day in and day out, night and day, over a period of a month, sitting on a desk with its top on, with, with like two layers of burlap sack over the top, I'm not kidding, <laughs> keeping any possibility of sunlight to touch in this thing, these seeds had grown, though I didn't know how. I really thought that it took sunshine and exposure to the elements to grow. Apparently, the growth was automatic. So these seeds sprouted and grew without any human effort. In fact, 
with everything stacked against them, being in this sealed container and covered with a, with a burlap. I just don't know how it happened. The principle is that the kingdom of God is a, dynamo, a dynamite level of power. It says the power of God is the dunamis, the dynamite power at work, but that we cannot always see and that we are not responsible for. We didn't do it. We didn't make this grow. It's God's work. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Just as the church of Bosnia-Herzegovina, just as in the church of Bosnia-Herzegovina, we play a part in planting the seeds of God's kingdom. And just like in the church in Bosnia-Herzegovina, we have a lot of stuff stacked against us in our culture both within and without, and without the church. We don't have the right amount of money. Now, I'm not talking about just us. I'm talking about the church. We don't have the right building. We don't have the people that we need to sustain the ministry. We don't have the, lead, the leaders we need. We don't have the programs. We don't have the right church growth strategy. Or the worship team and light show that makes you feel like you are at the Trans-Siberian Orchestra when you close your eyes. I mean, even our preacher is pretty much hit or miss from week to week. Now I am talking about myself. And what the heck does he do with all of his time anyway? The message is this. We really are not, when you think about it, relying on anything but God in this whole situation of the church. And if we begin to justify ourselves as, as people or as a church in the eyes of others, collapsing into the many contradictory opinions and interpretations of Scripture there in the church, or ways about, of going about Christ, the Christian life, or what people want or they think they need in our surrounding culture, if we compare ourselves or our church to something other than Jesus Christ and seek to justify our existence in a not-God way, we forget something that is essential to understand, and that is that unless the Lord builds the house, the workmen labor in vain, unless... The Lord watches over the city. The guards stand watch in vain. You know, when God's... This is the encouragement today. When God's seeds are planted, they grow. That's it. They always grow. Nothing can stop them. By the power of God, the seeds will grow. Large or small, resourced or under-resourced, the seeds will grow. God is at work in an unknown way. All the time. Even when the, even when the odds still feel stacked against us. We, do, we know not how, like, the, like the, the farmer. Day in, day out, God is at work in this un, his hidden way. And God is advancing his kingdom. His kingdom is bigger than church. It's bigger than all the churches in the world. Is, his kingdom is coming both inside and outside the walls of the church, just as it was for Jesus. And Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom. Which is a way of saying the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom. Now, growth is actually inevitable when God plants seeds in our personal lives, in our church. Because it's the growth of his kingdom. Nothing can stop what God wants to do. 
not any power in the world, not any mistakes we might make, not any slumps we might go through or find ourselves in. This is easier said than lived out. That's why it's an encouragement. But it's the truth. I really believe this. I've seen it. The greatest growth that we experience as individuals and as churches um, sometimes comes out of the greatest adversity and suffering because our needs drive us to remember that we are relying on the Lord. He is the one that's building the house. And if he is not the one that's building the house, the workmen labor in vain. Isn't it encouraging to know if you're here, God's planted a seed in your life. And God's planted seeds in our church. And nothing that you have done or not done or a way that you are or not or are not can stop Jesus' coming kingdom from coming. Now this should encourage us, but it should also humble us in many ways. The kingdom of God does not come by us having the correct opinions. We see this in the Bible with Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees. The right um, the right opinion or interpretation on a dubious theological matter. The kingdom does not come with the right musical style, with the right and most gifted people, with the correct interpretation of debatable scriptures, with the right sermons or the right pastor, the right youth group, the right quiet time, the right spouse, the right anything. That's not how the kingdom comes. The kingdom of God advances in a way we do not know how because it is God who advances it. So this, this should encourage us and then it should humble us. It's so easy to fall into the trap of comparison in our individual lives and in our church life. Comparing our lives to, uh, to other people we know who are Christians who seem to hear from God differently than we do and we wish that we were like them. Comparing our church even to the church of the book of Acts. Like we're, not, we're not stacking up. This is terrible. Comparing our spouse to someone else's spouse. Comparing our ability to hear God's voice with another person's ability. Comparing our style of religion or even our temperament with other people. My introverted friend tells me, who's a pastor, tells me, all church books are written for extroverts. I can't find anything to help me feel good about myself as a pastor. <laughs> yeah, that's true, kind of. There's not a right temperament. Sometimes God's deepest stuff is hidden in extroverts who we never hear from because we don't give them space. The kingdom of God advances automatically in a way we do not know how because it is God who advances it. So this encourages us and it humbles us. It's so easy to fall into that trap. It says last week, in last week's scripture, the Pharisees justified themselves in the eyes of others and failed to come to Jesus. They justify themselves by looking at sinners and saying, well, I'm glad I'm not like those people. Also, I'm better than those people. Also, those people have terrible theology or no theology. They, they justified themselves, and they were, meanwhile, they were not justified by God. And so Jesus said, these tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners are entering my kingdom ahead of you people who justify yourself but are not justified by Jesus. We talked about that last week. It's so easy to justify ourselves in the eyes of others, see how we're doing by looking to the side, to the left, to the right, to other, other places, other people, and to miss out on the actual work of the kingdom that's growing in our lives. Because Jesus has planted seeds of his kingdom in every person in this church and in our church at large. 
So this parable, it should encourage us. It should humble us. We don't need to write anything. We need, we need God. We need the Holy Spirit's presence. That's why we pray for the Holy Spirit to come and fill our, and open up our eyes to see Jesus on Sundays. You know, we need the kingdom of God, and we can miss it. We can miss it because of our pride, because of our methods and programs, because of our comparisons, because of what we think we need. We don't need more knowledge. You know, we have a Google-verse of knowledge out there. You can Google anything and be an expert theologian on something. We don't need more models. We don't need more methods or books. We don't need more or better leaders. We don't need more money, buildings, or what have you. Those, those, those things are lovely to have. But we desperately need God. Unless the Lord builds the house, the workmen labor in vain. And just as in Jesus' day, the tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, in other words, it's just a shorthand of saying, people that you wouldn't consider to be Christian or religious are often responding to Jesus and entering God's kingdom ahead of us, or even, this would be scary, without us. Because just because we have a church doesn't mean it's part of Jesus' kingdom. You could just be a golf club church. And what a tragedy that many people and entire churches are not even a part of God's kingdom at all, or only marginally so because they're so lost in making it about themselves, their ministries, their methods, their distinctives, their missions, and they forget that the Lord builds the churches. So the seeds are planted. That's the encouragement. Jesus planted his seeds. In the world's eyes, Jesus failed because the end of Jesus' seed planting expedition was that he was considered a complete and utter failure, and he died on a cross. His followers scattered and began to go back to their old jobs they had before following Jesus three years before. They abandoned Jesus, and they abandoned each other. Embarrassed, shamed, persecuted, failing, and many even killed in the midst of a culture of both religious and non-religious people who were all against the seeds of God's kingdom. No one wanted the kingdom. It's like God was trying to show us something, that at the very beginning of the church, from its very inception, that unless he builds it, the, the workmen labor in vain. Jesus said, don't do anything until the gift comes that my Father is giving you. And they waited and prayed, and the Holy Spirit came, and it transformed the whole thing. Jesus equipped his disciples, but they, they didn't have what they needed to start the church. They were all scattered. They'd abandoned God and abandoned each other. Jesus showed them, I will build my church. And over 2,000 years later in our day, you know, there's, there's like a billion or more people who associate themselves in some way with Jesus Christ and his kingdom, with an executed supposed criminal who died on the cross but rose again. People are, it's amazing. That's the kingdom of God. That's against all odds. And why are people behind Jesus if he was such a failure in the eyes of the world? It's because God raised him from the dead. God vindicated Jesus. God showed that the seeds he is planting of his kingdom will grow with or without us. His kingdom will advance with or without us, preferably with us. And so he raised Jesus to life. And he made a mockery of the powers of this world that didn't want Jesus' kingdom. And the kingdom spread. And now it's in the entire world, in our midst. And my, my, my real desire is that you, your households, and this church be a part of the kingdom movement of Jesus, the family of God. 
So we, we end with the next few sentences after the parable of the seeds. The final parable in Mark 30, uh, 4.30. Again, Jesus said, what shall we say? The kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants. With such big branches, the birds can perch in its shade. The smallest seed on earth, the, the smallest seed in the eyes of most people where Jesus was teaching. This small seed, when planted, it grows into a huge invasive plant called a mustard bush. I saw on Wikipedia, they were like, is it a bush or a plant? It's both. The point is, it's really invasive. It's like a big weed. And I'm not disrespecting Jesus by saying that his kingdom is like a weed. You pull it up and it keeps growing. It's clearly what the kingdom is like. <laughs> it says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? People that have died for Christ and been put to death for their faith have led to the church growing around the world, both then and now, in places where Christianity is not legal. A mustard bush, it's invasive. Once you plant it, it's almost impossible to kill it. It takes over the garden space. It sucks the nutrition from all the other plants like a weed. It ends up towering over everything else cheated from it. And it stands as high as, by some estimates, five and a half feet. And when you kill it, it will likely come back. And it'll come back bigger and better. And this is what God says his kingdom is like. A tiny seed that ruins your garden. This is the same thing we talked about in Daniel, about like all the kingdoms becoming the kingdom of God. And in Revelation... The Old Testament scripture this comes from is in Ezekiel, among other places. On the mount, in Ezekiel 17, it says, On the mountain heights of Israel I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit, become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. You know, Jesus references that, that really ancient picture for his audience. And then John, written after Jesus died and rose again, in, in Revelation, in the final book of the Bible, he said in Revelation 22, 2, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the, lamp of a, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. How then should we respond to these stories that Jesus gave us, these seed stories? Zechariah 4.10 says, Who dares despise the day of small things? Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will, rejoin, will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hands of Zerubbabel. You know, do not be deceived. You know, when we judge by what we see with our eyes and decide by what we hear with our ears, we can miss out on Jesus' kingdom. God does not do this. Actually, the complete opposite. In Isaiah 11.3, it says, Jesus will not, it's speaking of Jesus, it says, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions to the poor of the earth. Aren't you glad that Jesus does not ju judge in those ways, but with righteousness regards the needy and gives justice to the poor of the earth. So when you look at your life, you might not stack up what you think God's kingdom should look like. 
Maybe you don't hear from God in the same way as other people around you. Maybe you are not very disciplined in your faith walk like you think you should be, reading your Bible and praying the way you think you should be. Those are all good things, but maybe you just feel insecure in these areas. Maybe you do not have a background that's made it very easy for you to follow Jesus. You know, some people have it easier than others. And maybe you feel like you don't really fit in with other people that are Christians. It's kind of a weird, uh, a weird feeling. Maybe as in Bosnia-Herzegovina, you've been forsaken by your family because of your faith. Maybe they're not speaking to you. And we may be tempted to ask, you know, what good has come out of this? We get so wrapped up in that, in that comparison game and insecure, and we justify ourselves in every which way but by Jesus. But it's Jesus who justifies us. And when we accept the invitation to receive Jesus as our Savior, we are justified apart from the law and apart from works, says in Romans and other places. We are justified apart from anything we do. We know not how. Actually, we do know how. Through Jesus alone and Christ alone. And the kingdom comes. I have a really, I have a brand new idea for a t-shirt campaign for New Life. It'll say New Life Fellowship, and on the back it'll say Jesus is for losers. Now that, that is why Jesus himself told religious Christians of his day, the tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners, the losers in society's eyes, Jesus is not saying they're losers in society's eyes, are entering the kingdom of God before you. Now I don't know about you, but you know, I want my life and my church family to be a part of God's kingdom not a corporation pumping out Christian materials or filling Google with endless uh, pages. I want God's presence to be here with us in this place. I want us to love each other and be a real family together. A true family who doesn't just put up with one another, or my favorite, the world says we should be tolerant of other people. Is that really why anyone wants to be tolerated? We want to be loved. Love each other from the heart. Forgive one another from the heart. Encourage one another from the heart. Hold one another from the heart. Strengthen each other from the heart. Sharpen each other from the heart. I want anyone that comes to visit with us uh, at this church to experience the love, grace, and family of Jesus Christ, to come to know him as Savior and Lord, to be adopted into the family of God, and be part of the kingdom of God and of my life, of our life, to become my brother, my sister, my father and mother, my grandmother and grandfather, and my crazy uncle. I want everyone to become part of the family of God. And that's God's work. Night and day, whether we sleep or get up, the seed sprouts and grows, though we do not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, God puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. So I want to encourage you all this morning. You know, God is just looking for open hearts, for soft and nutritious soil. Give him a chance. God will make things grow. Especially when we're not getting sidetracked by all the other stuff. God wants us to major on small stuff. Not to worry about this or that like the world does and making all kinds of judgments about yourself and other people like the world does. Comparing yourself to others. Instead, just opening yourself up to the gentle Savior, Jesus Christ, who has planted you and will make sure you grow. I don't know how he does it, but he does. Night and day, Jesus works. While you and I sleep. And the leaves of the tree, of the plant that is growing in us, are for the healing of the nations, for the healing of our city, our country, our state, to the ends of the earth. 
So I think what Jesus would say this morning is stop judging yourself and other people and just surrender to God. And he will hold you fast, as the song says. He sustains you by the power of his spirit. He gives you what you need when you need it. He will hold you fast. Major on what some people would consider the minors, but which are actually the fundamentals of Jesus' kingdom. Love one another, just as Jesus has loved you. Now we in the church, and as a church, so often feel small and insignificant. Our work feels unnoticed or condemned by others. We wonder if we're making a difference. Our efforts feel so small. Maybe as small as a mustard seed. That when we are discouraged, tempted to lose heart in this work, in this community, we need to remember the principle of this parable, which has been proven true in history for over 2,000 years. It applies to the small situations in your life, in my life, in our life as a church family. God does not despise the small beginnings, the little things, the seemingly inconsequential things. These God chooses to grow into the great realities of his kingdom. So the fundamental things, love others, just as Christ has loved you. Allow his love to be made complete in you as God loves you and you love others in a perfect circle of love. How do we do that? We treat each other the way we ourselves would want to be treated. Right down to our, how we react to other people, our tone, everything we do to show the love of Jesus. We empty ourselves, as it says in Philippians, of our rights and privileges, of anything that we have, to love and serve one another to do small things with a lot of love. That's what matters for people in the kingdom. And this is the only way that church gets to be included in the kingdom of God. As Jesus said in Matthew 20, 40, 25, 40, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Small things, a cup of water for a thirsty person, visiting someone in prison, um, for someone that has a need through the soup kitchen or the care portal ministry that we do at the church, encouraging a child, encouraging a brother or sister in the faith. These little things that we do make a really big difference. As the worship team comes forward, I, I, I encourage you, as I, as I preached a couple of weeks ago, pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven for your own life, for your church family. Pray for how, how you respond to others in, in love, your full attention, your grace. Focus on doing smaller things with great love. These things that almost nobody can see, God sees. And these are the things that God grows into his giant, invasive, garden-destroying plants. The mustard bush. The kingdom of Jesus. That pastor in Bosnia, Jesus sees every time he comes to that, that door and turns the lock, wondering if anyone's going to show up. And sometimes no one does. Still comes. And God's love is made complete in him. And God's love will be made complete in you.